Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Hey everybody, it's me, Ben. Um, this is a interesting conversation with the author, Arthur Phillips, uh, who is one of my favorite authors working today. Uh, go check out his books. We talk about all of them uh, on this podcast, which I recorded while I was in Brooklyn with the Thrilling Adventure Hour uh, back in May. Um, it was a really interesting conversation. It was a lot of fun. Arthur's really thoughtful about what he does about the process of writing. That's the good news. The bad news is uh, that we recorded this in a cafe, and I did a couple of these while I was in Brooklyn, uh, recorded them in public in a cafe, and there's a lot of background noise. Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. But the conversation was so engaging, in my opinion, that um, I did want to share it with you. Probably if you listen to it on headphones, you will be driven insane. I listened to it off of my computer, and it was absolutely totally fine. Um, so I recommend probably not listening to it in headphones, but you guys will do what you want. Um, so I do hope you enjoy it, uh, despite the the intrusive background noise. There is a little kid who is sitting behind us at this cafe uh, who is pretty loud for kind of the first 15, 20 minutes. He goes away eventually, and by about halfway through, you know, it goes down to sort of a, a dull uh, background noise. Um, so I apologize for that, such is the way of these things. Um, but this is a, a fun interview nonetheless, and Arthur has some great things to say. Um, I am just back uh, from Italy, from that Michelangelo screenwriting program, which I told you guys about, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, please come join us next year. I will keep you guys updated on when um, slots open up and when you can, you know, get into get in on this thing. But I know that at least four of you who participated in it came through the podcast. So hi, Liz, Allie, Tim, and Hatman. Uh, it was a pleasure working with you guys. I hope they're there next year. Uh, I hope you all can join us next year. Uh, it was really cool. Two weeks spent in this little town in Italy just writing and workshopping material, that kind of stuff. It was, it was really a lot of fun. If you like these podcasts, uh, I think you guys will really want to be a, a part of this screenwriting program. Um, go to michelangelo-screenwriting.com and check out what it's all about, and please sign up for next year. I'm, I'm hoping I will be there, uh, but that is all for me. I hope you are enjoying the writers panel as well as the comics panel spinoff. If you are, please go leave a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. Uh, you know, the more reviews you leave, the better we do in the rankings, which helps out A26LA, uh, to whom all of the proceeds from this go. Uh, we'll have some more news coming up on all sorts of fronts, but in the meantime, here is an interview with Arthur Phillips. Um, anyway, so I was thinking on my way here, I just read, uh, or I most recently read, Tragedy of Arthur, mm -hmm. and uh, loved the Egyptologist. Yes, thank I you. Mean, that is, my wife loved it too. She wanted to come, but oh, thank you. Uh, the hotel woke us up super early, so she was like, I'm staying in bed. <laughs> um, and I was thinking, like, you love to play, or you tend to play with these unreliable narrators, and I did not know who would show up to this <laughs> chat. I'll play it straight. I I'll don't be, even I'll know. I'll be myself. Today. All right, that's fair. <laughs> maybe you're not even new. And who can tell anymore? <laughs> um, but I really, I want to talk about Arthur uh, right off the bat. And it, it's a couple years old, right? Mm -hmm. Is that right? Um, 
what is the by thing what I, you mean timeless exactly sorry it's really it's very dated <laughs> all of those references to friends <laughs> um the thing I was thinking through uh, uh, reading it is, what is your relationship to Shakespeare? My relationship to Shakespeare changed over the course of writing. Um, so I started as a, you know, the reasonably well-educated person who has been forced to read, chosen to read, gone to some shows, um, got it, mm-hmm. get it. And never felt the burst of like, oh my God, he's so wonderful, and I love it. Right. That I knew I was supposed to be happy. So that that and that pretty much lasted from tenth grade until about four years ago, um, when I got this bee in my bonnet to try to do this thing. And then I approached him as uh, I, re- I read him in a way that I. First of all, I read him in a way that I read writers that I love, which is I read everything he wrote in probably or possibly one of the orders they think he might have written in. Um, and I also read him in a way that I don't read writers I like, which is I read about him, and I generally don't want to know anything about him. And so I read what I could find, more or less true and more or less speculative, and, and then the outright nonsense of the conspiracy theories. And, um, and then I read a lot about how his stuff was put together, and then something happened. So by the end of the book, by the end of writing my book, I was at the place that I would have always wished I had been with him. Because actually, now, actually, no, that's not even right. By the, is this going to work for you? That's not okay. By the end of the book, I actually felt about him like I feel about my favorite writers, which is. I like lots of it, a lot, and would you know be glad to have some of it as the book that I take to a desert island forever. Sure. And he has a place in my heart, and he has a place among other writers, and um, he's definitely in like my top ten. Wow. Which to me is like if you said that about anybody else. Uh, you'd think, well, that's high praise. Right. But if you say about him, it's like somehow it's like dismissive right. or something. But actually, he achieved like you know great writer status, for me, but not absurd status, which is what he sort of has in the general culture. Sure. So that's my relationship. But it to took it. Um, it took all the work to get there. Yeah, I mean, it, it it took what a Shakespeare scholar does to get there. I mean, you had to do the homework. Yeah. I'm curious about the learning the nuts and bolts. Um, you know, when you say how his work is put together. What what did that entail? Uh, that's fascinating to me. Well, that's some something is, you don't get in 10th grade English. Yeah, well, some of it is 10th grade English. Some of it is, okay, look, here's how I am at the time it works. I mean, I knew, I knew roughly how it works, but I guess I didn't realize how often he left it behind, under what circumstances he might leave it behind. I, I read... Um, uh, or about how how he would use it to, you know, both for practical things of his own, how it made it easier to memorize a line for an actor, mm-hmm. or how it stressed uh, the words that particularly mattered and that he wanted to hit sort of thematically, and how verse itself replaced stage directions. Mm-hmm. How if you uh, realize that the verse has a rhythm to it, he will tell you what words to stress, honestly. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need to, like, underline a word and say that's the important one. Right. Or you don't need to, if he's saying in the in the verse, and so I, you know, and so with this sword, you never had to have the stage direction. Right. He goes and gets a sword. Which leads to interesting things. So anyhow, uh, what else, nuts and bolts-wise? Um, uh, 
I did some research on how the theaters worked, how those actors were, what they were expected to know and mm -hmm. when, and, and what would have been slightly the differences between, you know, playing outside of the globe or inside at Blackfriars, mm -hmm. why some plays were written probably for one theater or the other. Um, uh, what else? You know, I, the thing that wasn't something, the thing I sort of had to figure out for myself was, because um, I knew I was going to try to write one, I went, through, as I was reading them all, and I read them all basically here and mm -hmm. out loud, um, <laughs> was to uh, try to figure out just a sort of generic model. In an early play, mm -hmm. what tends to happen in the first act? What tends to happen in the second act? And then compare what he's actually written to the source material that we know he used. Mm -hmm. So this again wasn't, you know, wasn't necessarily tenth grade English, but it was all of this work combined with a sort of interest in what we know biographically about him. Uh, produced in me kind of that delusional projection that, like, oh, I know this guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know him because he's sort of like me. Well, and, you, and you have to sort of achieve that right. to, to write something of this undertaking. I, I mean, you had to be immersed so yeah. closely in the guy and his life and the language yeah. and the works. And, um, you know, so, so, you know he, he's a guy who does research, as I realize, as I'm doing research. Like, because he didn't. We don't think he spoke Italian. Mm -hmm. If he didn't speak Italian, how do you get these Italian phrases and references? Well, he went and asked somebody. Uh, he read it in this book or he read it in that book, some of which we can trace, some of which we have to guess at. But if we can trace some of it, and we know that a guy that he grew up with in Stratford owns the bookstore in London. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start to get a picture of from my perspective of a guy like me who goes to the bookstore, who looks it up, who asks somebody who speaks Italian, who at the same time that I was doing this research and talking to Shakespeare scholars and asking for their help and getting to be friends with them. And it was clear to me that if he didn't know falconry, you go find somebody who knows something about falconry so you can, you know. Right. That's fascinating. I mean, it's funny to hear about that kind of immersive work. You know, I talk to so many TV writers who say the way to learn to write television is go find a show that you love. Right. Sit there and watch an episode or episodes over and over and take it apart and you know, figure out what happens in Act One. And, yeah. You know how how it's handled. What is the art of it, and what is the craft of it? Uh, it seems like you know that that approach to Shakespeare led to you writing this Shakespearean piece. Yeah. Um, and you say you had this bee in your bonnet to write this book. We don't like to say where did it come from, right. but how was that planted there? I mean, this is not something everyone would think of. How much shape did the book have when you? We're just starting to think about it. Very, very little. Mm -hmm. the, the, bee in my, the bee in my bonnet was, I wonder if I could write a Shakespeare play. <laughs> really? Yeah, that was the starting point. Without and, having jumped into this research right. and saying, I don't really care for this guy, or right. he's good enough, right. I wonder if I can do it. Yeah, for, and I think there were two reasons. One was an immediate reason, which was in a previous book I had written, sort of just for a plot point, I, I needed like three lines of Shakespeare to say a very specific thing, mm -hmm. which I did didn't really look very hard for him, couldn't find, so I just sort of winged it and figured, well, I'll just, you know, I'll use ten syllables and I'll try not to use any words that are obviously wrong. And that, no one noticed. Um, That's hilarious. And so I just thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could do a whole one. What would I have to, what would I have to know? And at the same time, I was talking to a friend of mine who was a theater actor, and he was going on about Shakespeare's greatness about something, and I think I said something like, he gets away with a lot. 
and uh, and my friend was somewhat offended. I remember, and he said, "What do you, what do you mean he gets away? We should be grateful for what what he's done." And I said, "Well, all right, fair enough." But I mean, he does get away with a lot. My friend really wasn't going to have any of it. So, I, and what were the things you were thinking? You know, I don't think I really had a very clear notion in my head, other than like, other than some of it isn't necessarily as good as other parts of it. Like, I don't like all of it. No one likes all of it. So if you don't like all of it, then he's just a guy. And if he's just a guy, why are we talking about him like he's literally the creator of humanity? Um, and there are books that say it's absolutely. So I was puzzled by that. And then, uh, you know, the other part of the research that I loved was the guys around him. I'm no scholar of Johnson or Marlowe or whatever, but if you get... So a lot of people, educated people, can say Johnson, Marlowe, and a lot of actors can say, oh, I've read Johnson and Marlowe, or I've seen... Marlowe, or you know, and then there's a huge drop off. So we have this notion that really he was alone, essentially there wasn't anyone else doing this. But in fact, he was you know a member of a generation of a dozen, fifteen guys who invented the entertainment industry, who invented TV writing, as far as I'm concerned, um, and who all had a part to play and who all had various judgments of each other and judgments from the outside of each other um, and so the idea that now really there's just one guy <laughs> I find very interesting because that means a lot of guys for whatever reason who at the time were judged to be as important or more important or better are somehow gone which always gets under my skin and I don't know bums me out a little bit so that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, it, it obviously has a great corollary to now. Right. You know, there are the guys that we, right. that maybe have staying power. Right. Guys that we know even from 10 years ago. Exactly. Um, that's very interesting. And so what does that mean, the staying power? Because, like, all right, we all, we all know Shakespeare is Shakespeare, right? So Shakespeare's obviously, he's got, he's, he is stuck around because he's Shakespeare, obviously. At a certain point. Right. Well, that's just it. Because if you go back to the time, one of my favorite things in the whole world is, there's a quote from a critic, essentially a critic at the time, who says, for tragedy, our best writers are Shakespeare and Watson. And Watson's work is all gone. We don't have anything of it, not one word of it. So we're all like, oh, well, Shakespeare is obviously Shakespeare because he's Shakespeare. But the fact of the matter is, at the time, you know, so I, I find that fascinating and troubling and, and it's a, yeah, obsessive it's an make, in my own mind. So anyhow. It's an interesting thing to yeah. sink your teeth into. Yes. And, and it must have been where, you know, the front two-thirds of the book started to come into play. I think so. Having this conversation with yourself and yeah. others. Um, when did that start to gel for you? Um, did, the, did the playwriting come first? Yes, definitely. Every time in every draft, the play came before the book. Um, but also, I think, at the, at the very beginning, when I said, I'm going to try to write this play, and I poked around with it for a while, I realized pretty quickly it has to be in something. Mm-hmm. So actually, this ended up being very kind of technical reason for why it ended up the way it is. It has to, I mean, I can't just produce Shakespeare and <laughs> right. hope to make a living. So uh, it's going to have to be in a book, and it pretty much occurred to me soon that it's going to have to be at the back of a book. It can't be at the front. So, sure. Because of the Shakespeare hurdle? Yeah, exactly. exactly. So there's got to be a reason to read the book that isn't Shakespeare, and you've got to get... So these are, this is literally the order it came. So like... <laughs> But then I was like, I'm very proud of the play. I would like people to read it. 
even though I know it has to be at the back of a book about something else. I'd like people to read it, and I'd like them to read it with their defenses somewhat down, so that they're not just saying, oh, here's some jerk who thinks he can do this. Who's so, think he is. Right, who's think he is, which is a very potent defense, and you're not going to get very far in enjoyment if that's what's on your mind. So if there was some way to just make people a little off balance by the time they got to the point. Not oversign it, but not undersign it, and letting it just sit somewhat on its own merits mm-hmm. and let people deal with it then. That's interesting. And that dictated a lot of the rest of the book. That's very interesting. Um, at, at a certain point, though, a choice had to be made that I'm going to be writing this as Arthur Phillips. Oh, by the way, I'm talking about Arthur Phillips. I don't know if we said that on this. Oh. Um, it's semi-professional. Um, at a certain point, you had to say, you know, I'm doing this as a version of myself, right. and, you know, there's a version of my family, this uh, yep. alternate universe version of my family. And um, again, was, was that all kind of taking shape at the same time, or, or was that a, a conscious choice? Well, once you know, once the decision was made to try to keep people off balance, mm-hmm. then the question is, well, what is the container for a play that makes you get to the play and say, I don't know what I'm reading? <laughs> so surely if you're told up front... Fictional character A said fictional character, you know, and then presented you with fictional character play B, then you can't do that. So, um, so it wasn't long thereafter I realized this is going to have to have some justification for existing. Um, and then the idea of introducing it somehow, I have to introduce it, seemed like the next obvious. Why would I have to introduce it? Which is a trickier question. Um, and then, you know. Right. The pieces fall into the place. The pieces start to fall into place, draft after draft. Before we move off of this topic yes. altogether, uh, I would love to hear about the performance of this play, mm. which uh, Bob alluded to. Well, two years ago when the book came out, um, a theater company here did a, reading, did a stage reading of just the play. Mm-hmm. And then that same company and I worked together over the next two years, more or less, to produce a... Um, more of an adaptation of the whole book. Oh, wow. And that's what was up for a couple weeks this spring. Um, And it was bits and pieces of the introduction and bits and pieces of the play intermingled going back and forth between the two. Tell me about that process a little bit. That's really interesting. Well, to give credit where it's due, really the artistic director of that company, Ben Jordan Reeves, um, had the vision of how to put the two pieces together on stage mm-hmm. and then to expand them beautifully and with his stage wonder working. Um, so he would say, you know, I think we need more of this and less of that. What can you... And I and even would say, I think this section of the book would be great. So mm-hmm. turn that into dialogue, which, oh, then, I, which then I could do. Because mm-hmm. I don't think I could have done that without guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that something you've tackled before? I mean, working in these other media? Well, I've got a lot of TV writing going on right now. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I haven't really done any other playwriting and certainly adapting my own. Yeah. I've got books and stories of mine that are in various stages of film development, but mm-hmm. nothing with me doing it because right. I just, it seems about the hardest possible writing job I could imagine. Um, well, it's really, I mean, it's another language from from novel writing. It's not that I don't feel like I can write screen stuff because I'm doing it, but I can't write my stuff. Mm-hmm. Adapt my, I can't adapt my novels. Why is that? 
Because I think you, I think the process of adaptation means being willing to throw the entire thing away and say, well, now I'm going to make something new, mm -hmm. more or less connected or more or less inspired by the old thing. Um, and there's something about that that I just don't think I could do with my own thing. I could adapt somebody else's thing. Sure. Um, you need that distance. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I could do it. Yeah. So the fact that he was telling me, you're going to adapt this part and not that part, <laughs> made it a lot easier. Sure. So, you can zero in on yeah. that micro level and just concentrate on this. But I've watched other writers, you know, I've got a short story that's getting ready to be in the future, mm -hmm. and that the expansion of that short story by these great screenwriters couldn't have done that. And then I've got a novel that's just wrapped shooting. Uh, and to me, you know, the beauty of that novel was that it was four voices and four parts all woven together to produce this thing, and now it can only be one voice. I don't know how to do that. I don't. I really don't. And so the the, the writer director who did it did a great job, but I literally couldn't have done it. Do you feel uh, ownership of that other product? I mean, what's your relationship with that? To the finished movie, you mean? Yeah. Well, or even you know, even just the screenplay. If you've gotten to look at that, I don't really feel much ownership over it, to be honest. Um, I mean, I do, I do feel like the legal <laughs> desire to be paid before somebody does it. On the record, you clarify. Do. <laughs> I'm not uh, giving things away, but I do feel, you know, there's that old silly joke, the Hemingway's, about how you... You take your book and you drive up to the fence. Right, right. So, um, I think there's something to that emotionally. It's just, they're going to make something else. It's not going to be your book because your book already exists as a book. So they're going to make something else from it. So whatever they make, I hope I like it. I hope I enjoy it. I certainly feel more excited about it than I do about Transformers. Um, but, you know, it's theirs. Interesting. They bought it. It's theirs. Mm -hmm. Sort of as the two part. So. And in the in the um, adaptation of, of Arthur and the play, uh, it must have been a much, you must have had a much closer affinity to that having yes. done it. And, but it must have been also really interesting and unusual to see actors perform these lines, which yeah. only lived in your head. I was on set for Angelica um, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, and I mean, I was so moved. To me, I mean, you know, nobody. Else, it's, an, it's a strange experience. I would not generally go on set look at a costume shop and be moved but to go and see she, there's this wonderful production designer she's Oscar winning production designer from Merchant Ivory movies and you know she's built the Victorian lab that I imagined sitting here um, and she's got every detail you know handwritten Victorian orthography letters on top of hand wound cotton swabs from, and it was you know stunning and beautiful and wonderful the first time I saw the set for Tragedy of Arthur the stage thing I just I was moved to tears to be honest but um, but you know I can't claim that's a normal reaction <laughs> or that most people will experience that when so you're not going to a sitcom set and exactly. you're having the same although I don't well the first time it ever happened I wrote for uh, some friends of mine on a TV show called Damages mm -hmm. so the first time I ever saw actors saying something I had you know eight traps previously right. sort, of, <laughs> sort of written uh, was that and that was you know I wasn't moved to tears by Damages but I was very interested in the process and yeah well I, it is an exciting is. event right yeah, I mean, you especially do the first time that happens yeah. it's, it's a really you do it monthly so I didn't realize Angelica uh, 
have been adapted. That's a tough book to adapt. Like that is, there's yeah. a lot in there. Yeah, I could not do it. So all credit to Danny Mitchell Lichtenstein who's doing it. Fantastic. Um, tell, let's talk a little bit about that book. Um, I read that some time ago, so I'll try to recall as right. we talk. But um, you know, it feels like it's it's part of the stuff that is is the stuff that you know you make books of. I mean, it feels like an Arthur Phillips book. Um, but it also feels a little, a little different. Uh, tell me about just coming to that book and 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 the process involved in writing it. Um, to the best of my recollection, uh, you know, the, the, I can remember very clearly the moment when I realized, in all in case of all six of my including the one I'm working on now, novels, the moment where I realized, oh, that's a, I've got a book. And it's not a moment where I'm not Mozart. It's not like I've, and I'm, I've got a book and I'm done. I just have to type it. Um, I have a uh, just a flash of something that seems like it will expand. And it'll be pleasant to pursue that expansion for two or three or four years. So in the case of Angelica, I remember I was walking my dog, as I often am in these things, and I had uh, a somewhat creepy idea. And I thought, I've never seen that creepy idea in anything else that I know of. Mm -hmm. And I started kind of furiously writing down notes around this creepy idea, which ends up you know, at about page 80 or 85 or something in the book. Um, and then thinking, well, who would have such a, you know, how would such a thing happen, and who would, what would happen to the mother if that creepy notion occurred to her, and why doesn't she just go talk to somebody, and well, maybe she doesn't maybe, and then setting sort of, and time frame sort of happened afterwards because I wanted to put her in a position where such a creepy notion is more paralyzing maybe than it would be today. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, as I'm writing out sort of versions of this idea, I start to think. Well, yeah, but that's not how it would look to somebody across the room who didn't know. And so then it became a technical problem again of like, well, how do writers express two different points of view in the same scene? Um, and then, and there's all kinds of ways it can be done. But it seemed like there was so much that, that was distinguished from everyone's point of view that I thought, you know, this is one where I have to let one person tell it all and then let somebody else tell it all and let somebody else tell it all um, and let those be as starkly different from each other as possible. And then let one overarching narrator try to put them all together. Mm-hmm. And so those things, you know, that what I described in five minutes took <laughs> a year and a half to sort out. But it is, I mean, like, like Arthur, it's that growing out and yeah. putting those pieces into place and mm-hmm. that, again that conversation you have with yourself yeah, it's very interesting I converse with myself out loud <laughs> listen it, it works um, you know you, you have to be inquisitive you have mm-hmm. to take apart the idea and mm-hmm. say what's the best way to present this yeah. um, you know this this idea of um, whether it's conflicting narrators or narrators in unison telling the story uh, is something obviously we see throughout your books um, have you have you explored this? Have you looked inward to say What's my problem? Why do I why do I do this? Or do you let it happen? I think at the beginning it just seemed like interesting. It would just attract my attention, so I'll just follow whatever. I mean, the only rule I set at the very beginning of my first book was let's just enjoy this process and no tangent is unacceptable and let's see what happens. So. Um, you know, subsequently, I think it's probably occurred to me more that um, 
that there is probably no such thing as a reliable narrator, um, and that the distinguishing or the distinction you're taught in school that like some books are mm-hmm. omniscient and some books are. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not deep into any postmodern theory or anything, but it seems obvious. It's just a statement of fact that if somebody wrote the book, then somebody has an opinion. <laughs> and if somebody has an opinion and they're trying their hardest to keep all their opinions out of the book, that's fine. But, you know, they can only tell you so much because there are only so many pages and so many words. So um, they may go to great efforts to make sure no one is treated as the villain uh, and to try to give you all the facts that they can give you. Mm-hmm. But everything is written by a person. Duh. And with my experience of people, I haven't met a thoroughly reliable one yet. So, um, I mean, it's so obviously it's a, I just you know it's a spectrum from uh, and when you realize that it's a spectrum, then and my books fall on a spectrum too. You know, I think the song is you is generally towards the reliable end of things and uh, the narrator of Prague is not intentionally messing with anybody mm-hmm. so you know, I think that's actually the, there shouldn't be a distinction between reliable and unreliable I think it should be a distinction between intentionally unreliable and inadvertently unreliable I think those are really the that makes sense. that's the real distinction I mean but it, there's also you know when we read a book mm-hmm. by any given author mm-hmm. we don't have to be hyper aware of you know the cloudiness uh, the the levels you know right. of a person wrote this right. and this person is writing this person right. and and all that's true that. you know i mean there has to be some uh, it's a choice that you make in writing yes i accept um, that <laughs> And yeah, um, and please stop. <laughs> uh, what is your what is your process like? I mean, what does your day look like? You know, you're you're making a living as a writer, which is something a lot of people aspire to do. A lot of people who listen to this podcast. Um, well, okay. To be entirely honest, then I used to make a living as a novelist. Uh, I now make half a living as a novelist. Um, that's a function of the changing world that we all live in. Uh, that's a function of the um, I'm sure somewhat a function of my actual sales figures to humans. Um, it's a function of the fact that fewer people buy books and publishers are dying and all the rest of that stuff that we all know about. So my process now is different in the last two to three years than mm-hmm. it was for the first ten or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to cut my day into two shifts. One shift for novel and one shift for other. Mm-hmm. Um, and other includes scripts that I write producers and uh, pitches that I'm putting together for shows of my own and um, collaboration with comedy partners and um, anything else. Mm-hmm. So, How many of those other projects are you working on at any given time? Every day is sort of new right now. Um, so at the moment I've got, you know, one novel and maybe four significant other things that I have to keep in the air. Because it is a lot, but you know, I'm and I'm learning slowly and I came to this late. I know there are people out there who aspired to the screen business from a very early age and I stumbled into it somewhat late. But it is obviously, you know, a business of, of uh, taking multiple shots at things. Absolutely. Um, for me, novel writing was somewhat obvious. You wrote the novel that you were writing, <laughs> and when you finished it, if you were lucky, you could sell it. Um, but 
that's not obviously the way TV seems to be working. So that's a question of, you know, one of them I'm being paid to write a draft, so that has to happen. Other ones, it's entirely my speculative notion to put together a pitch. Um, another one, I have a producer who says they could probably place it if we could produce a certain thing, so we come up with stuff that's halfway in between speculative and paid. It's not paid, and, and yet there's hope. So hey, you're paid in hope a lot of times. Um, so until someone is paying me, you know, it's, I start to try to think of it as a business where uh, I have a certain number of customers to whom I'm trying to tailor my products, and uh, when they pay me, they have more of my time. Absolutely. That's the only thing you can do. Really. Absolutely, yeah. That's, and yet some things you do out of love. You know, and for me, I would write novels even if I weren't paid. Right. Please don't tell my publisher. But, um, so I will find time every day to write novels as I did when I wrote my first one. When I was paying for it then, it was because I wanted to do it more than anything else. Yeah. So novel gets the morning and other stuff gets the afternoon. It's, and it must be, I mean... I imagine it's easier to care about the novel again say you would do it you're writing it out of love yeah. it's nice that you know it's going to land somewhere that helps but you know it's uh, on these on these Hollywood projects um, it can be tough to care I would imagine you know, I think it depends a little I mean on the one hand it's tough to care because maybe somebody else came, came to you with the idea and said I'll pay you if you write this thing that you never right. that you never had that moment of inspiration over yeah which makes it somewhat harder to care and the other one is you've got a moment of inspiration you really want to do it but you can't waste a lot of your time on something that nobody wants right it's one thing to be a starving artist or literature and poetry and music it's something else to be a starving artist for television yeah it doesn't make any sense there's no reason to sit in a garret right. killing yourself to produce the perfect pilot that nobody will shoot mm-hmm. um and so it's hard to let yourself care too hard until you've got some forward motion. And then you've got the pleasures of collaboration, which are not to be scoffed at. No, not at all. But they are obviously balanced off with the torments of collaboration, <laughs> um, which can sometimes make it hard to care, too. Sure. So it's a very different emotional landscape than writing on your own in your in your RV. Yeah, Even in dividing your day, do you find it tough to shift gears? I do something in between, you know, I walk the dogs right. or I cook dinner and you know, whatever. Um, and generally, no, I can shift gears pretty well. That's good. Um, the problem is when, you know, deadlines start to linger and then, or lurk, and then you start to be like, I, I, can't, I can't do my idea day split. I'll just kill. The, I'll just throw this week at this thing and I'll get it done. At the end of which time you're like, where was I on the other one? It's hard. That's the problem is keeping more than one ball in the air. Yeah. So. Getting back into that other thing. Exactly. I mean, there, there is a ramp up period, right? Exactly. Which is very uncomfortable, uncomfortable because a ramp up period feels like ignorance yeah. and, and a lack of inspiration and idiocy, <laughs> which is not the most comfortable position. No, not at all. Uh, how do you get through that? Do you just push through? It's just experience. After a while, you know, I have felt this bad before, and I have still produced things, and therefore, I now have to feel this bad today. Um, so, yeah, after a while, I think you can... Experience covers a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Because the first time you sit and feel stupid, the hundredth time you sit and feel stupid, or when you marvel that you can write a sentence as lifeless and pointless as that one... Um, uh, 
you know, that's when you start to think, well, maybe I should be an accountant instead. And you're doing the same thing. Teaching is so, it seems like, it has such easy parameters. The 10,000th time you do it, you're like, yeah, yeah, I've been here before. Right. It's not going to kill me. Tomorrow it will be better. And if tomorrow doesn't better, then Wednesday will be better. And that's fine, too. Um, in, in novel writing, how much are you able to turn out in a morning or in a given space of time? I had an inspirational um, realization very early on that the, the churning out was not um, words but time. Mm-hmm. And so very early on I just said my writing day will consist of whatever the time that I was comfortable with, mm-hmm. 90 minutes, whatever I had before my real job. Sure. And in that 90 minutes, I cannot do anything else. I cannot. And now there's a lot more things I could do. Yeah. I cannot look at the web. I cannot check email. I cannot text friends. I cannot read the newspaper. I cannot. I am going to sit down in a place where I have writing material. And that is the job. Now, either I will write or I won't. But even if I don't write anything and I sat there and was available to write in for 90 minutes or two hours or whatever, then I did a good job. <laughs> so, as a result, I very, very rarely have times when I don't write anything. Yeah. But if I do, I do. I literally, I really do believe that that was work, and that uh, something happened to move the the project forward. Mm-hmm. And it'll turn up later on paper. <laughs> so that counts. Um, how, but how do you find the discipline? And this comes up a lot. I mean, even with TV writers who are under a deadline, how do you find the discipline to not get online, to yeah. not get on Twitter? To you know, yeah, it's hard. Um, I'm lucky in that I started before those things existed, uh-huh. so and it's part of your. So I already process. know, like, I'm not allowed to do other things. So when a hundred new, in the course of my career, a hundred new things that could distract me came up. I started to make very interesting decisions, such as that. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, this is a phone from 1990. <laughs> that is my phone, which I prefer not to have a phone at all, but I guess mm-hmm. I have to have a phone. But my phone <laughs> does not right, but my phone does not receive or send emails or browse the web. Yeah. My computer is a when I am using a computer, I write by hand a lot, but when I'm using okay. a computer, um, it is a uh, very old laptop. I do not have an account to get online. There's no wireless in the place I happen to write. Um, so I, I do try to short-circuit my temptations a little bit. Interesting. You know, so it works. My discipline is very strong and very good from the first time I began. Um, <laughs> do you have to get back? Yeah, of course. Like, I, I sort of am so fascinated and, like... I know there's this fetishization of the writer's process, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, what is the workspace you, you use? Is it right here? You can't get online here. Oh, that's great. Um, nice. I work in the. I've always worked in cafes. Mm-hmm. Going back. Um, oh, which in, reminds me. Yes. Um, I think you were writing Prague in a cafe that my sister was managing. She told me this when I said I was going to talk to you. Uh, in Boston. Uh, was it T-Lux, maybe? Yeah. What was your sister's name? My sister's name was Rebecca Blacker. Uh, she's curly hair. But she was like, yeah, I was there while you were writing that. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I was but living, even since then, yeah. I was living in Cambridge and um, was... I remember the relationship between T-Lux opening and me thinking I could try to write fiction. <laughs> they were pretty close to close together. Really? Yeah. Um, 
so I wrote a book there and started outlining a second one there and then we moved away and I wrote a second one elsewhere and then we moved away again and I wrote a third one elsewhere and then we moved here and I finished the third one and then the fourth and fifth one here and it's funny um, I, I don't know why I just I just knew I had to go to the house because mm-hmm. among other temptations are the answering machine and the mm-hmm. TV and the refrigerator and absolutely even just wandering around the house yeah mm-hmm. even, even pre-internet I just yeah. I couldn't get anything done in the house absolutely so and I don't want to spend money in an office because the whole point of being a writer is I don't have to go to an office so I can come here and they'll bring me food and, right know. well there's something about making it work a little bit yeah. you, know, you leave the house you go do this thing mm-hmm. and you come back and you, you yes. don't do this thing exactly yeah uh, that was the other thing I you know when I was starting um, I made the mistake or I did the necessary research of reading like biographies of writers mm-hmm. and their advice and rules of writing and how do you get it done and all and everything I've said so far to you is is bullshit to anybody who doesn't for whom it doesn't work sure so you one of the joys of the job is you get to figure out yourself how it works yeah. For, sure. for me, this is how it works, and, and maybe it won't always work this way. In five years from now, I'll be sitting here scratching my head, wondering how it. But at the time, I remember thinking, "Well, you're supposed to do 500 words a day," because Graham Greene did yeah. 500 words a day, and if he got to 501, he stopped. Mm-hmm. And um, which to me, spends you spend a lot of time counting words, but um, or you you know you have to have this or that that I knew this or that famous writer that I liked did it that way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And you, you set your rules and you go. Yeah. But I did realize one of the mistakes that I was making was I'm not going to write until I feel inspired to write, until I have an idea. But that's, you, I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And if you sit down at the same place every day at the same time, you will find delightfully that inspiration is usually waiting for you when you get to the table. Absolutely. Um, yeah, we're just like dogs, right? And we need that routine. We're dogs. Right, exactly. We're, we're a bunch of terriers. Yes. We need to know now it's time to go out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you know, I carry a little notebook with me everywhere I go mm-hmm. in case something brilliant lands on my head. Uh, and I'll write it down and it'll still be there tomorrow morning when I start work and everything's good. That's so, great. You know, writers get a lot of... Um, uh, I don't know, maybe less and less, but you know, it used to be like writers got leeway basically to be assholes because <laughs> whatever, you know, we're artists and we're inspiration strikes. I can't be bothered to turn up at home. I can't be bothered to wake up for the baby. I can't be bothered to be rel- You know, it's because I'm whoever I am. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I find to my astonishment that a lot of the writers I really admire turn out to be very bourgeois guys and women who just. You know, went to work and got it done. And, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's. That's uh, there why I imagine Shakespeare, you know, and he's. Sure. A unique situation, but <laughs> I see how his day played out, I think. Right. Actually, one of the things. He did the work. He did the, one of the things about him, you know, I was talking about that generation of guys around him. Mm-hmm. There were only two of that generation that stayed married to the same person pretty much for a long period of time. Who? Made enough money through their business to to retire or to live comfortably by the time they died. Um, never went to prison as a debtor. Didn't get syphilis. Didn't uh, die drunk and mm-hmm. in, in you know uh, homeless. Tough business. But Shakespeare was one of those two guys. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know all the different compromises he made in his life to right. stay married to a woman <laughs> who lived across the country from him and all the rest of it. But there's something about the fact that he was a practical and accomplished business person Mm -hmm. that is very closely tied to why we know him in the first place. (laughs) We were probably done with this topic, but I can't help it. No, no, not at all. 
the reason that one of the reasons that we know Shakespeare and we don't know Thomas Watson mm -hmm. is because when Shakespeare died, his business partners published all his plays in the big collected works mm -hmm. and got blurbs for it and made a really nice edition and wrote a nice introduction and made sure it was sold and distributed. And that's one of the reasons that he exists to this day. Seven years after he died, his business partners were like, you know, this is we can make some money at this. <laughs> Nobody did that, as far as we know, for Thomas Watson. Right. Uh, and the fact that Shakespeare was, in fact, good business during his lifetime was not unrelated to the fact that he was a good businessman and was a practical-minded, get-the-work-done guy. Well, you know, probably while everyone else was at the brothel. So, uh, being an artist, right? Exactly. Basically, having the you know the party fun time of, of <laughs> getting to hang out with theater people and all right. the stuff that we all know it's fun. So, there's something about that fact about him that obviously appeals to me a great deal. He, mm -hmm. he got it done. He got it done on schedule. He put his money away wisely. His family had money at home when he retired back to them in the countryside. Sure. And as a result, at least not unrelated, yeah. we know him. We That's know his place. Yeah. Huh. So, anyhow. Makes sense. Um, and sorry, yeah. I was going to say, the other guy who basically okay. made a uh, career of it, also, if you look on Amazon, you can find the collected works thicker than Shakespeare's. Mm -hmm. uh, so Thomas Middleton, mm -hmm. okay, we don't love Thomas Middleton, but... He collaborated with Shakespeare, mm -hmm. um, probably influenced in ways large and small by Shakespeare, and he held it together. Huh. Like Shakespeare. You have to be a grown-up. You have <laughs> to be a grown-up. You want your stuff on Amazon 400 years from now, you That's have right. to be a grown-up. That's really funny. So, who were some of these uh, folks that you know you responded to as writers, whether it's growing up or who you found influential along the way? Um, I mean, there are hundreds of sure. novelists that matter to me. Um, some more obvious than others. I mean, I can go through lists and lists and lists of stuff. But well, tell me, like, I'm I'm curious. Let's go for at an early age to okay. start. You know, what was? I mean, the first time I was reading books and was like, wow, this is the most wonderful thing to be doing. Was probably you know Sherlock Holmes and Three Musketeers. Mm -hmm. um, um, and when I was an early teenager, somebody gave me some Graham Greene, and uh, I didn't get most of what was troubling those people, but really? I thought the stories were pretty cool. <laughs> and then I got into John le Carré and, mm -hmm. and spy novels and things like that. College, um, you know, and then in high school, I was uh, Hemingway and uh, Salinger and Fitzgerald started to do something to me. And, was there uh, something that you read or, or were exposed to um, where something clicked? And you said, oh, this is something. People write this, and that's something I could do. It took a long time. I didn't think I was... I didn't have writer aspirations until relatively late in mm -hmm. life, as these things. So I was probably uh, 26, 27 when I realized, oh, 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 I could do this, and this would be fun. What uh, course were you on before that? I'd been a musician for a while. Um, I had been... Uh, um, sort of an internet startup. I'd gotten writing jobs. I was doing some speech writing and advertising copywriting and PR writing and lots mm -hmm. of things like that, but it was quite dull. Mm -hmm. But well, it, you knew you were adept at it. I was adept in that way. Yeah, I could put words on paper ever since whatever, high school or college. Um, but the realization that like I could do it on demand on a deadline at X hundred words a day, mm -hmm. I didn't maybe realize that until I had all these jobs. And then I was like, well, this is boring. I wonder if I could do something more interesting. 
Um, and that's when I started writing and realizing that I could write fiction. So it was kind of a backwards way of getting to it. I think a lot of people go the other direction. But yeah, there were definitely click moments. And in that... Um, well, I guess two things happened. One is... Um, so in college, I found Kundera mm-hmm. um, and, and read a lot of Kundera in, in college and after college and had what a lot of people have as a reaction to him. And, um, what I, and then I started reading his essays about writing and about literature, which I hadn't really done before with anybody. And the thing that most interested me about them was, A, his strong feelings about how it is supposed to be done, mm-hmm. but also the lists of the people that he admired. So then I started reading all the people that he admired who I hadn't read. Um, and then realizing that they had lists of the people that they admired, and then reading them. Who were who were those people that Kundera admired? Well, Kundera's lists were Flaubert and Tolstoy, a guy named Italo Svevo, um, uh, Joyce, Mann, Musil, um, and Kafka. Those are the ones that come to mind as things I read because of Kundera. Mm-hmm. And this is stuff, I mean, obviously... You probably get a smattering of it in high school. Not very much. Probably not at, yeah. at all I mean, in college. Yeah, there was you're seeking it out. Exactly. So I, you know, I basically put myself through this process happily because it was easy to do for me. It was fun to go and read all this stuff. And then you start to challenge yourself. Well, I guess I should have read Proust by now. So I'll read Proust. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I did, and you know, had feelings about that process. But, <laughs> um, uh, and then, well, you, and, and when you're in your early twenties, right? You, and you've got time. You have time to do it. I sometimes think, oh, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I doing anything like this now? But it's hard, <laughs> yeah. and you do have time to do it. And so I inadvertently sort of put myself through a graduate program on my own. Of, yeah. um, and then stuff would come out, and you read a lot of reviewers. And so when James Wood says, "If you love and Proust and Mann and Musil mean the world to you, then you must read uh, Peter Nadosh." Book of Memories. So I read, a, read Peter Nadash. And like, oh, all right. And then I started thinking, then I just started writing to myself, like, okay. So, all right, you asked moments to click, and there were two important ones. One was the realization that for all that Kundera said, his strong feelings about what literature and fiction were for, I realized that the more I read of other people, the more they contradicted each other in terms of. Uh, what they were for mm-hmm. and often they didn't like each other and I found you know so and so makes fun of such and such but I like both of them so what does that mean which I found very disorienting at first but then the realization that all these writers exist I like all of them in greater or lesser degrees even if they don't like each other is a, is a great licensing moment because um, whatever you're going to do doesn't have to agree with Mm-hmm. Any of these guys, sure. or all of these guys, sure. because there's room to disagree on this. Right. Point. It's very freeing. It's very freeing. The yeah. other thing that was very freeing was reading *Pale Fire*. Uh, to me, was a moment of great freeingness. Acidity. Of course, I don't know why I didn't think of that. <laughs> because I didn't realize, stupidly, until that moment, <laughs> that uh, you could do anything and call it a novel. <laughs> I just didn't, I just, you know, I'm not the genius enough to have made that up myself. So the real is, and then, you know, that, and um, maybe I think around the same time I read Tristram Shandy. Um, and then it was, then, it, then I started to think, well, hold on a second, you know, it does not have to be once upon a time, this happened, the end. Mm-hmm. It could be 
<laughs> I have 20 note cards, and here's a poem, and check the footnote. The end. The end. And then realizing that your whole brain has been turned inside out yeah. by this experience. It, it's funny, too. I mean, I, I can't believe I didn't think of that. It's been so long since I read it. But, you know, there's something in so many of those Nabokov books that is clever, and, or I guess it's playful without being so clever. You know, it's not so winking. Uh, there's something serious and playful at the same mm-hmm. time that, that mm-hmm. is absolutely exists in your books as well. So I can clearly uh, You know, books are. Um, you, you know, you can write anything. I could, if I were to put myself to it, write nothing but dark murder mysteries mm-hmm. for the rest of my days. I suppose. But the fact is, if you relax into it, you tend to produce something that it's not necessarily autobiographical, it's not necessarily revelatory of anything about yourself, except that that's the sort of thing you like. Mm -hmm. At that point in your life, that's the sort of thing that you like, and it seems to be, and that is about the sort of things that matter to you. Right? Absolutely. So, given that, um, at least for a very, very long time, when I read Nabokov, I thought to myself, yeah, that's the sort of thing I like, too. <laughs> he writes the sort of thing I like to read, right. and I'd like to write the sort of thing like that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, combined with, but I also like Virginia Woolf. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like, you know, huge canvas of George Eliot or whatever. Sure, sure. you have this sum of influence. Exactly. So everyone's the sum of this wonderful stew and everyone gets to make up their own stew. Absolutely. Combined with your experiences. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, Do you like writing? Do you like the process? Um, Do you enjoy it? On good days, I like the process of writing more than anything else in the world. Um, I could not... I don't know why you would do it otherwise. I know that other people do it for other reasons, and they feel like they're sad, so they write, and then they feel better, or they talk about, like, it's blood from a stone, or... Mm-hmm. Um, for all the discipline I have, I, I would not do it if it was a torment. Mm-hmm. I don't know why people do that. I know that. People do it, though. I know, I know they do. I don't, I don't they, uh, Take no joy in the process. Right, I don't get it. Uh, maybe they... Uh, you know, the thing we hear is they like having written... You know, I think writing is better than having written. Mm-hmm. Um, I have both. I write and also have written, um, and I'm lucky enough to have written to you know good results. Like I have books that I've gotten paid for and that have gotten good reviews or have won a prize or that I get to go and give a talk or I chip or give an interview with somebody. But um, uh, none of those things are as good as a good day's writing. <laughs> So that's great. It's great to hear. But I, but you know, as I said, I don't have a, I don't have a psychotherapeutic need that I have to work through. I'm not dealing with trauma that needs to be purged through writing. Or you might be too well adjusted to continue <laughs> writing. <laughs> I may just stop and become a playboy. But, exactly. Um, thank you. Um, so so you know, giving due sympathy to people in that sort of pain, I, I still don't get it. So. That's funny. Um, well, before we wrap up, we, mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the Egyptologist. Um, and this uh, this process of getting into the heads of characters mm-hmm. and, you know, formulating these stories. Uh, there's a dark space there. <laughs> uh, can you recall uh, putting the story together? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about that, if you will. The, the moment of, oh, I've got something, mm-hmm. was, I thought of what is now the last two pages of the book. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I thought of the end first, and mm-hmm. I thought, I, that's, that would be an interesting ending to a story, and I've never... <laughs> and you think, didn't know what that story was? No, and I don't think, I, I don't think I've ever seen or read any story that ends with that. Mm-hmm. So now how do I get there? And then... Uh, not too long after that, I thought, well, Egypt is probably where it's going to have to be, and it would be fun if it was the 20s because all this stuff was going on, and so now I better do some research. And so I started learning a little bit about Egypt in the 20s and Egyptology. And, mm-hmm. um, but it was all in service of getting to those last two pages. That's um, really interesting. Which I, to this day, you know, and it's funny because to me, still to this day, those last two pages are. Surprising and uh, uh, shocking and whatever, mm-hmm. and yet there's a, because that book has a lot of other sub mysteries wrapped up in it, some of which are easier than others to disentangle. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of backlash about how I don't think the ending is such a big deal. The ending is so obvious from the beginning because people were talking about other right. pieces of the book, which are you know as my my dad guessed on page twelve or whatever. <laughs> like I can't argue with that. That's hilarious. Um, uh, and he, you know, so, um, but I, yeah, it was definitely about getting to those two pages. So was the book written fairly quickly then? I mean, was it a mad rush to get it to took these about two, two and a half pages? years. Oh, no. um, what what is average for you? If I didn't have anything else to do, it'd be about two and a half years. Okay. That was the case for books two through five. Wow. Book one, I had a day job, so it took four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, book six, I have all kinds of other things going on, right. so it's now dragging into year three or whatever. And, sure. um, but I, I think it would be a two-and-a-half-year process. Mm-hmm. And how much of that, are you researching while you're writing, or are you trying to get research done? Is there a tipping point that you You know, feel? it seems to vary each time, too. I Generally, research feels a little bit too much like work for me to want to do. <laughs> um, but that said, I you know I set out, a, once I knew the Shakespeare thing was going to happen, I set out a, a pretty strict plan of what I needed to get done, mm-hmm. and, did, and spent six months of that, mm-hmm. taking notes and researching. The Egyptologist I just wrote and left blank spaces. Really? And just said, you know, insert research here. Mm-hmm. And then I would go when I desperately had to and read something, which then inspired something else to happen. And, you know. uh, did you know Did you know these characters going in? I mean, you knew the story, how the story ended, but yeah. did you know who these people were? No, I don't... I think, um, for any aspiring writers out there... Um, I think you will waste a lot of time if you wait for all your answers before you get started. Yeah. And that, in fact, answers will be answered in time. And the only thing, and you don't have to worry too much about the fact that it's so obvious to you that it's unanswered, mm-hmm. because the fact that it's obvious to you that it's unanswered is your strength. Mm-hmm. If you can tell this is incomplete, then you don't have to worry that you're somehow inadvertently going to write something stupid. That yeah. uh, you're on the ball and keep going. And when you you know some days you'll just write because you got something you got to get down. Other days you'll say to yourself, well, what needs fixing? Well, I've got a long, long list of things that are incomplete, so I'll mm-hmm. walk away at those. And that includes characters. Mm-hmm. If you're lucky, you might get a whole fully formed character in your head. <laughs> uh, I don't think it happens very often. And I think a lot of people take the technique either because they want to or they philosophically think it ought to go this way or as a crutch of taking people who are real mm-hmm. that they know or know of and turn them into characters which is one way of getting over the problem of formulating 
right. them from scratch. Right. But if you're formulating them from scratch, I think it's too much to ask in most cases that you formulate them from scratch instantly. And then instead you should think of it as a uh, uh, process of making a snowball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you keep adding and you keep adding until you suddenly realize, oh, okay, I could roll this down a hill and it would, it would crush the village <laughs> in the valley. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about it in this way of adding to a thing, mm-hmm. uh, the creation process, mm-hmm. whereas we so often hear about, uh, especially in novel writing, a discovery process. Yeah. You know, this stuff is there and you're uncovering it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin, but it certainly yes. speaks to different approaches to writing. Well, I've certainly had that feeling of realizing that I've got that it's there or realizing that wow all this stuff I've been doing is actually scaffolding and I can throw it away now because mm-hmm. I only needed it in order to figure out what was underneath it sure. or I only had these first these last two pages of the book and yet you know I discovered a whole map of a tomb <laughs> so yeah I think it, I think they're you know discovering that it's there or adding to it are metaphors for the same I think the same process. Maybe, maybe it speaks to one psyche versus another. Maybe, yeah. What are you reading these days? What are you? What's getting you excited or inspired? Or what are you watching on TV or in movies or listening to? Um, let's see. What's uh, getting you excited to do the work? Um, well, for TV. May 26th is the Arrested Development. Um, you are really counting down. Oh, I'm, I, I, you know, yes, I'm think, I feel very strongly about Arrested Development. I think that, uh, and I just hope it can possibly live up to the last however many years of watching Arrested Development reruns. Um, I hear great things. I hope so. I can't wait. Um, for books, I am reading research for my current novel, and uh, I just got sent a book. It's, I'm too early to blurb it, but I was just sent a book to blurb, and I've read three chapters, and I, it's clearly like I should keep reading, Great. which doesn't always happen, yeah. which is a book called The Facades. I want to say Eric Lundgren, the first novel by a guy from St. Louis, and so far, totally into it. Um, um, what else? Uh, books you would recommend from the past couple of years? Uh, yes, I have those. Um, well, the last few years I blurbed uh, A Partial History of Lost Causes by Jennifer Dubois. Sure. I did not finish in time to blurb, but would urgently like to have blurbed uh, The Vanishers by Heidi Julibitz, oh, sure. which I think was fantastic. I have not read that. Oh, I hear great things about her. Really good. It's really, really good. Um, uh, Way, uh, back in the land of the dead where I'm more comfortable um, and reminded of it by Proust I had read um, A Dance in the Music of Time by Anthony Paul which was you know I, I'm just trying to pace myself before I go do it again wow. I'm never going to read Proust again but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to read Paul at least once more if not mm-hmm. twice um, I feel like that book has come up a lot in the past 15 years oh really? like it's something that People keep discovering and rediscovering. Yeah. You know, writers who are kind of making a splash will talk about it. And then, yeah, you know, I mean, great. I think one of the reasons, I, I hate to say something as shallow as this, but I, I really think one of the reasons uh, is its cover. <laughs> yeah. There's some, I, for years, for years, I would see its spines mm-hmm. in, book sh- in bookstores when I went in looking to find something new, and I would think, wow, that's such a cool cover. <laughs> 
because it's four volumes, yeah. and you know, I'm, and the spines of the four line up to make a picture. Um, so you were, I was always noticing it and thinking, well, I'm never gonna whatever it is, it's probably boring, right? I don't it seems read. very it's too long. long. I'm not gonna blah blah blah. And I don't know what first got me to do it, but once I got into it, I was like I just devoured it. Um, and it's it's brilliant and funny and and gives you the same sort of emotional punch of having spent a whole lifetime with somebody that Proust does, but to my taste, much more pleasantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just the way the way he built it is so funny. Mm-hmm. All of the sort of most dramatic events uh, occur off camera, as it were. Mm-hmm. Like the narrator or one of the characters tells you, mm-hmm. oh yeah, he died. <laughs> he died? <laughs> when? Uh, because, of course, I think one of the whether intentionally or not like one of the ideas is most of the dramatic things in anybody's life happen off camera so and at one point the narrator at one point the narrator after you've been with the narrator for like 300 400 500 pages the narrator makes mention of his wife and his kids and you're like wow you how, what do you mean <laughs> so it's really interesting so and yet you're deeply Entwined with these lives of these six, seven, eight characters. Um, so, anyhow, cool. I, yeah, go read that. All right, it's on. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, really my pleasure. This was fun. Great to meet you. You too. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah. Now leaving Nerdist.com.